Well, good morning to you. Uh, just once again, I wanted to introduce myself. If we haven't met, uh, I am Johnny Artavanis. Katie behind me singing is my wife. Yeah, we met here at Hume Lake in 2018, and um, we got married the following summer. And uh, now we have one baby, Lily, who's asleep right behind the curtain. She turns one today. And um, she woke up this morning saying, Mom, Dad, I'm so excited. It's my birthday. And No, I'm just joking. She can't talk. Okay. Um, well, if you would grab your Bible and turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We'll get started there. I love the way Eric set the stage last night. He talked about that being a Christian maybe 50 years ago used to get you a job. Now you could potentially lose your job over the convictions that you hold. This is true because not long ago, America was a land of Christian values. The average family would find themselves on a church pew on Sunday morning. There were those, of course, that didn't go to church, but they weren't hostile towards the claims of Christians. They were just indifferent. You could say that the winds were at the backs of Christians. Being a Christian was good for job applications, for university applications. My grandpa was a Cadillac salesman his entire life. He first generation immigrant from Greece, and he sold Cadillacs in Santa Monica his entire life. And he would tell you that when he became a Christian, it became good for business because people would look at him and say, Christos Artavanis, you can trust him. He's a Christian. But those winds that were once at our backs are now blowing steadily in our faces as those who were once indifferent to the claims of Christianity have become indignant over the thought that an invisible God gets to govern my choices and define reality, my body, and whatever else it may be. You might live in the home of the free, in the land of the brave, but it's becoming increasingly hostile towards those who bravely and freely profess that Jesus is the only way to God. Your dollar bill might say, in God we trust, but if you trust in the scriptures as the final authority in your life, you will be detested, despised, and undesired in the workplace, at universities, and in your neighborhoods. I want to give you a flavor for this, and to do so, I want to point you to the hearings of a man named Russ Vaught. He was applying for the position, the governmental position of the Deputy Director of Management and Budget, and during the hearings of his appointment, he's being cross-examined by a senator, and I want you to listen to this dialogue. This is just a few years ago. The senator says, I understand that you are a Christian, so he's talking to Russ, but the United States is not composed of people that are just that. I understand it's a majority religion, but there are others of different religions here and around the world. Do you think that those who are not Christian are to be condemned? First of all, this is a theological question. It has no room in a government interview. And what he's referencing, this senator, is that Russ Vaught had, wrote, had written a, a post for a private Christian school on the centrality of Jesus Christ and salvation. So Russ responds and says, Thank you for probing on that question, Senator. As a Christian, I believe all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. 
I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. The senator responds and says, you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and stand condemned. Do you think that's respectful of other religions? And Russ responds and says, I wrote a post, sir, based on being a Christian for a Christian school on the centrality of Jesus Christ on salvation. And you can watch the interview. The senator looks left, he looks right, leans across the table, looks at his fellow senators and just says, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to say that this man is simply not what our country is all about. That's a freeze the frame moment because that senator's name is Bernie Sanders. He was votes away from becoming the most powerful man in the world. And he says that if you believe Jesus is the only way to God, you're not what this country is all about. This is becoming all too common. Don't believe me? Just ask the Marine who was court-martialed for posting a single Bible verse in her cubicle. Or ask Professor Walter Tutka, who walked up to a kid who was last in line and said, hey, don't worry, kid, the first shall be last, and the last will be first. And the kid responds and says, what's that from? He goes, it's from the Bible. You want to take a look at my pocket New Testament? The kid looks at it, tells his parents, what happens to Walter Tutka? Well, he's suspended for the year. Don't believe Walter Tutka? Just ask Kelvin Cochran, the fire chief in Atlanta, who was suspended initially for teaching biblical sexuality in a children's Sunday school class at church. He was suspended and told, him to go, told to go into sensitivity training. And then upon arrival back from his suspension, he was let go. This is the world that we live in. And it's helpful for reminders for us that we are exiles. This culture is trying to press us into its mold. But we live as citizens of heaven while we are pilgrims on the earth. That's the idea of our theme. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. Even in the last few months with all the drama that's unfolding with abortion and the Supreme Court, who does the media portray as the ones that are the most unloving? It's Christians because they're trying to tell someone else what they can do with their body. And so the media and social media scoffs, spits, and scorns the idea that you have an angle on the truth, and you know the only way to God. Now, the question I want to answer this morning is how do we live in such an environment? How do we not grow callous and bitter towards those who reject and oppose the one we love the most? What is the hope provided for you as a university student, as someone in the workplace, as someone working amongst unbelievers? What is the hope provided for you? from God's word, to live in such an environment, not so that you can privatize your faith and merely survive, but so that you might live in obedience to the God who has placed you here for such a time as this. Sometimes I, I had someone else tell me, tell me the other day, an older man, um, and I've heard this a few times, I'm glad I'm gonna be dead when all this goes down. Meaning that I'm gonna be long gone and uh, you're going to you know, deal with the consequences. And I said, I'm not, I'm not glad. This is the greatest time to be a truth teller in recent history. Do you know that? Do you believe that? This is the greatest time to know the truth 
God placed you here for such a time as this. And the question that you and I need to ask as we look at even a count of a few stories that are YouTubeable, and you can watch all these interviews and all these stories in the next 60 seconds. How do we live in such an environment? Well, thankfully, into a world like this, the Bible speaks with unfailing relativity. It tells us how to live. And Paul is going to tell Titus in Titus chapter 3 how to live in such a way Titus, just a little bit of context here, he is a Greek man on the Greek island of Crete. It's a real island at a real point in history. And Paul tells him, and we see this in Titus, that Cretans are lazy, violent. And one more thing, the scripture says that they are liars. They are deceivers. In fact, one of the words to describe a liar back then was a cretizo, which means to be a Cretan. Now, Paul is going to intentionally introduce himself in verse one, I want you to see this. We're gonna be in Titus chapter three, but look at Titus chapter one. And look in verse two. Let me just start in verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, what's the next three words you have? Who cannot lie. In a world of lies and confusion, you have a God who cannot lie. There is not one coincidence in your Bibles. Do you understand that? The greatest comfort for people who live in a world of lies and deception is that they anchor their hope in a God who cannot lie. And in this environment that Titus is in, an environment of lies, deception, Paul is going to commission him to do an important work. And what was that work? Well, Paul is commissioning Titus to set up elders in the churches that are there in Crete. Providentially, God, in a sea of paganism, had established healthy churches. And so much of this book has to do with Christians proving the power of of the gospel through their lives. Now in chapter two, that is manifested by how believers are to live and operate amongst each other. Chapter two is internally focused. The older men are to teach the younger men. Now just pause real quick. If you're a young man that wants to be like Christ, the biblical prescription for you is that you have an older man who loves Christ that is pouring into your life. Are you a young woman that wants to be like Christ? Well, the biblical prescription is clear. You need an older woman in your life that loves Christ. And that's what chapter two is about, that we are being mutually poured into by one another. Even the young with the old keep them fresh and zealous in their own love for the Lord. It's a reciprocal relationship, but we need those who are older and more mature in the faith. But in chapter two, Paul is going to relate to us that the way we relate to one another is its own testimony to the world that we are different. Now, after Paul has approached how they are to conduct themselves internally within the church, he is going to move on to chapter three where he is going to tell us, if you're a Christian, how we are to live and operate externally to those in a dying world. Now, I want you to think about the context. Titus is in an environment of gross sexual sin, liars, beasts, murderers, and we think about our own day and we have commonality with Titus because Titus is in an environment where sin is not only allowed, it's applauded. 
it's affirmed. Now, what Paul is going to tell Titus here is crucial because he knows the temptation of those who know the truth that see the world around them and recognize its depravity. He knows the temptation for us to wholly huddle together and to shake our fingers and to shake our heads at the dying world around us. Is this temptation not real? When you watch the wickedness on full display, you look at the world and you look at the news and go, what is happening? This is insane. Aren't you thankful that God knows the propensities of your heart? And he knows the propensities of mine. And when you look on the news and you see people rioting and picketing for something that God is so obviously against, and when sin is broadcasted on every show and in every movie and in every store, Paul is going to instruct Titus, and the scripture instructs you today through God's living word, because Paul is going to provide us with four truths to remember so that you can live for Christ in a hostile world. Four truths to remember so that you can live for Christ in a hostile world. I cannot think of anything more relevant for us today than Titus chapter three. The first truth to remember in verses one and two, and I'll read it, is to remember our civil duty in the outside world. Titus chapter three, verses one and two. He says, to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I wanna just talk for a moment, one word on this first word in chapter three. Paul says, to remind them. I want you to understand that the Christian life is not full of calls for us to be innovative, but rather calls for us to remember what Christ has done and what God has said. One of the things that I hear commonly amongst popular young adult preachers today is that the church is gonna lose the next generation unless we start doing church another way, unless we start talking a certain way. Listen, when we go to the scripture and when I teach you the word of God, I'm not trying to talk or discover anything new. I'm not looking for innovation. And if you hear about a new perspective or a new doctrine regarding something that's in the scripture, that's cause for concern. Because when we go to the Bible, we are called to remember what we already know. And the duty of a Christian is to make fresh upon their hearts what might become so familiar to them over time. When one great theologian lay on his deathbed surrounded by the men that he had shared his life with, one of the final words he shared with those men that he had just discipled for years and years is he gave them two words, avoid innovation. This is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of, anybody know? Reminder. Paul says remind them. So as you come to even a retreat like this, one of the things that I wanna tell you is that my goal and Eric's goal, maybe we'll present something new to you in God's word, but it is not new in itself. It is something that is old. And we are here to stir you up potentially by way of reminder for what you have already known and heard. 
Well, Paul's first reminder is to instruct Christians that they aren't rioters or ranters or picketeers when it comes to the civil sphere. They are to operate in submission to governmental authority. Why? Well, we need to remember that to submit to government authority, we do that not just because this world isn't our home, but submission is a weapon that Christians wield in the public sphere. Now, to understand this, we have to remember that at the time Paul is writing Titus, the world is run by the regime of Rome. And any Roman centurion could come up to any man, tap him on the shoulder with his spear, and you were legally obligated to carry that centurion's gear and armor for up to a mile. Now, the Cretans would have done this begrudgingly, but only the Christian would do it gladly and say, let me take this another mile, and while I walk you another mile, let me tell you about the hope of Jesus Christ. The centurion would look at him and say, this is different. What's different about you? And the man holding all of his gear would say, it's a long conversation. Let's walk. And this is how Christians are to operate. It creates opportunities for gospel advancement. We are to do this. Second Peter, uh, in First Peter 2, verse 9, it says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are to display to the rest of the world what a saved person looks like. Well, how are we to do that? Verse 12, we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Well, how do we do that? Verse 13, we submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as one in authority or governors. This is the will of God. Now, there may be an alarm going off in your head. Well, what if they tell us to disobey the Bible? Well, then we don't do it, right? Because the law of God always supersedes the law of man. Amen? But our duty before the watching world is outlined for us. Seven virtues. It says we are to be obedient. It says that we are to be ready. That's eager, drop of a hat, anticipation for every good deed. To slander no one. Think about that. How many people is the Christian allowed to slander? Answer, no one. No one. To not be contentious, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for everyone. This is total humility. This means that not only are you in your civil sphere operating in love and grace, but it also means that you consider even the people you live around. Bring back block parties because you're trying to show the outside world. I'm different and I've been changed. Okay, so we remember our duty, but how do we grow from becoming resentful and angry? How can we live winsomely and kindly towards those who are becoming increasingly hostile towards the one we love the most? Well, number two here, we remember who we were in verse three. We remember our civil duty, first of all. Now, secondly, we remember who we were. Verse three, it says in verse three, for we also ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I want you to listen. The only way that the children of light don't become hostile towards the children of darkness is to remember that you too once were a child in the dark. The only way you don't grow hostile or bitter or callous or contemptible towards those who reject God and reject his word is to remember that you too, apart from the initiating and intervening grace of God, were just like them. In contrast to the seven virtues that describe the person who lives in the civic sphere, 
in an obedient way, Paul is going to list seven vices that once described you in your former condition. This is a comprehensive and crushing analysis of your life before God intervened. He says, you too, verse three, once were foolish. This means that the lights weren't on in your own mind. You refused the warnings of sin. You seared your own conscience. Sin was pleasant and profitable. It says that you were disobedient. This marks the unbelieving life. You knew what you ought to do, but did what you wanted to do instead. It says then third, that you were deceived. This means that you were easy prey for false teaching. You were easily led astray. The same word for deceived is used in Plato's writings to describe a wandering star with no fixed anchor. And that's how you were. You had no fixed anchor to truth, but you did have a fixed leash to something else because fourth, it says that you were enslaved. This means that you were enslaved to sin, your own pleasures, your own desires. Paul uses the word enslaved here because sin is never a side relationship. It is always a master. Your relationship with Christ before he saved you, if he has saved you, was not peripheral. It was a master, and it enslaved those who serve it. And then it says that you were malicious in verse three, and envious. This means that you had a selfish disposition, used hurtful and harmful words. You were envious of what other people had. You hated when other people had what you wanted, and you hated, what other, hated when other people had what you currently had because you wanted to be the only person that had it. This fuels what else do we see in verse three? We hated other people because you're self-centered. And because hatred is a vicious cycle, the end of verse three says that we were hated and hating one another. And then Paul looks at us and says, hey, as you look around the world and you're tempted to grow bitter, what you need to look at the mirror and ask is have you forgotten that you were once this way? Or maybe if you've grown up in the church, have you ever seen your life outside of Christ in the eyes of God? You two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hateful, and hated by one another. You may sing amazing grace, but it'll never be amazing until you believe verse three. Because it says amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch. Have you ever believed that? Because the people I know that are most quick to criticize the world around them and holy huddle and shake their fingers and shake their heads and say, what's wrong with everyone? Are people that have never looked in the mirror and said, wait, I am verse three. I was foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hateful, and hated. Hell is full of people that theologically affirmed Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To affirm that you are only human or that no one's perfect is not to recognize sin in your life in the eyes of a holy God. And Paul says, have you forgotten that you used to be this way? 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that he used to be a persecutor and an aggressor towards people that were Christian. But do you know what he says? He says he did it ignorantly in unbelief, meaning that he didn't know any better. Paul is saying that all the sin you see broadcasted, all the sexual perversion, all of the murder, all of the news clips that you see on Twitter, this guy walks up to a random guy, smashes him with a baseball bat. What is happening here? This person does this, mows over three kids in a neighborhood park. What is happening? It's the insanity of it all. Paul's saying, listen here, Ephesians 4.18, the Gentiles, that's just those who don't know God, they're darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their hearts. Paul is saying to you, every time you look at the world and say, what are they thinking? You need to understand that biblically speaking, they're not thinking clearly. And you know what? Neither did you before God saved you. God's law is written upon all man's hearts. But what we see throughout scripture too is maybe you've been thinking, well, well they just need more education or they, they just need a better understanding. But what we see throughout scripture is that the most educated sinners do the most damage. And that's what we see today, right? Who pushes the sexual perverted agenda? Who pushes full-term abortion rights? Even Biden yesterday. You can abort a baby, cut it to pieces the day before it's born. Who pushes that type of agenda? The brightest minds at Ivy League schools. The scholars of the world are those that are most oblivious to what is most obvious to a Christian. Because you can read page one of the Bible and know that this is wrong. Increased education apart from Christ often fuels increased ignorance. And maybe as I've described the former condition of unbelievers or believers when they were unbelieving, you think, not me, I've never done that. I'm not described in that way. But I must remind you that wickedness, sin, lust are often restrained by their environment or by pride. In the account of Joseph in Genesis, it says that he is tempted and seduced by the most powerful woman in the world, Potiphar's wife. And his response is not, his response is not, oh, I'm gonna get found out. His response is, how could I sin against God? He sees everything. And there may be times in your life where your resistance to sin not, wasn't because you saw that everything was uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who sees everything and to him whom we will give an account, but because if you were to be found out, it would be a detrimental blow to your reputation. And so potentially there are times in your life when you can look back at this comprehensive list and go, that's not me, but potentially you stayed away from sin, not out of, of an affection for Jesus Christ, but out of an affection and allegiance to other people's perception of you. Spurgeon used to tell the story. He says, we have not been so bad as others because we could not be. A certain boy has run away from home. Another boy remained at home. Is the latter a better child? Listen, he says. He had broken his leg and could not get out of bed. That takes away all the credit of his staying at home. Potentially between attending church, knowing the truth, memorized verses, and familial pedigree, you've never seen yourself in this light. So scripture always affirms that the foolishness listed here 
is not just the bad works that obviously oppose God. The foolish works here include the religious works that we think can earn the favor of God. The foolishness of the world both looks like the prodigal in the pig pen in Luke 15 and the religious elite in Luke 18 that says, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. Have you ever seen yourself in the truth and in the light of scripture? Maybe these sins were not yours in actuality, but in potentiality they were yours. I wanna ask you a question, and it may hurt a little. Did you think you did God a favor by coming to him? Do you think he owes you? Listen, lost sheep don't seek shepherds. Shepherds seek the lost sheep. And once you forget this, you lose your ability to operate biblically and like Christ in a world that is increasingly dark. If you're a Christian, you see yourself amongst those who were once lost, and because you do, you don't view the world around you with contempt and bitterness, but rather like Christ, who looked at the world with compassion and love and a burden. And as we remember who we were in verse three, in verses four through seven, we are compelled to remember what Christ has done. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not on the basis, or not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's the first word in your Bible in verse four? But, like in, in, the, in the book, uh, What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert, he says the word but is small, but it has the power to sweep away everything that came before it. You once were deceived, disobedient, enslaved, and it says but when the kindness and goodness of our God and our Savior appeared. What does that mean when it says appeared? This is the incarnation. God's goodness is not a theoretical abstract principle. It's an incarnated idea. Jesus became flesh. This is the intervening and initiating love of God. This is an important word because this means that God didn't meet you halfway. Sometimes you know in a movie when there's this idea that two people fall in love and then they, one guy chases the girl down at the airport. They recognize their need for each other. They drop their bags and they run as fast as they can and meet halfway at Chicago O'Hare or something like that. That's the idea sometimes that we think we have of our relationship with God. We are in two opposite end zones. We both saw our profound need for each other and we ran to meet each other at midfield, and God got there a little bit faster. 
biblically speaking, we didn't meet God halfway. He intervened and initiated and proclaimed his love towards us in this while we were yet what? Sinners. We did not meet God at the 50-yard line. Jesus came to save those defined by verse 3 and who recognize their sin. Luke 19.10, he came to seek and to save the lost. This is the good news Titus is to proclaim, and this is the good news that you have to recite and rehearse to prevent your own heart from becoming callous in a culture of darkness. In verses 5, it says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Pause. Question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I want you to think of the godliest person you know. Grandma, pastor, John Piper, whatever it may be. They are no more justified before God than the seven-year-old that places their faith in Jesus Christ. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Well, then what? But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is spiritual rebirth. This is why Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, the most godly, reputable, knowledgeable man on earth, he says, you have to be born again. You have to be born again, just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth. You have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It is a miracle of God. And Paul is telling Titus, listen, one of the things that you have to remember in the world of darkness is that God did not do spring cleaning on your mildly tainted heart. He took a heart of stone and transformed it into a heart of flesh. In Mark 2, there's a, a miracle. Do you guys know what that miracle is? There's a guy that's lowered through the ceiling. It's a paralytic, and Jesus says, what does he say to him first? He says, your sins are forgiven. And then they say, well, what are you talking about? Who can sins get? forgive sins but God alone and then he says well so that you may know that the son of man has authority and power to forgive sins I say to you pick up your pallet and what walk what Jesus is saying is that the inferior miracle in Mark 2 is the resurrection of broken bones and the healing of a paralytic the greatest miracle is the one that he does in the hearts of pastors, kids, and prodigals alike. It is the provision of a new heart. I told the story a few years ago when I was a camp director here overseeing with Sarah at the high school camps. We used to travel for these missions trips, and I remember on one of them I, I got in an Uber and uh, the guy's name was Michael, and I always ask people if they go to church anywhere and what their background is with religious things. And I say, hey, do you go to church anywhere? And he says, uh, Johnny, I'm 55 years old, and I've missed church five times in my entire life. And, um, you know, I'm, like, I'm recognizing I'm dealing with a big shot in the back seat, you know. So I, I said, okay, what church do you go to? And he tells me I'm Mormon. And I know a little bit about Mormonism because I've shared Christ with Mormons that I've worked with, and I used to work in finance. And 
I asked him, hey, what's the main difference between what you believe and what I believe as a Protestant in your mind? And he responded and told me a story. He goes, let me answer the question by telling you a story. He says, pretend my daughter wants to buy an iPad. This is an iPad. They're like 600 bucks, I think. Um, pretend my daughter wants to buy an iPad. What I have her do is instead of buying it for her, I have her work and work and work and work, do everything she can, sweat, grind, labor, do everything. And at the end of the year, I have her go and put everything she's done on the counter. And it's 34 bucks. She's obviously not an entrepreneur, but that wasn't the part of the story. He says, then I go up and I pay the difference. What you believe is that Jesus paid it all. Do you know that many religions believe that you are made right with God? Other these spheres of Christianity believe that you're made right with God by faith. But it's not faith alone, it's faith plus human effort and achievement. But biblically speaking, there is no achievements based salvation method. We don't offer God $34 and then he pays the difference. We sing Jesus paid it all because he did not save us based on what we've done in righteousness, but because of his mercy, by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This means that your salvation, do you believe this, is a miracle of God. And you did him no favors by coming to him. He demonstrated his kindness and his love towards you while you were an enemy of God. And the people that forget this are prone to contempt in the world around them. People hate the truth. They're so dumb. What are they thinking? This is insanity. Clown emoji, quote tweet. What a fool. What an idiot. What's happening? It's embarrassing how I see Christians talk about the world around them. You don't clown emoji anybody. You were once like them. You were once foolish and deceived. And don't you understand that your salvation is not because you saw something everyone else is blinded to because you're smarter than them. It's because God had to do a miracle in your life. And the people that forget that have missed the first rung of the ladder in Christian influence. And it says in verse seven, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, what do heirs receive? Talk to me. An inheritance. And when does someone receive an inheritance? When someone dies. And that is what our Lord has done. He provides us with an inheritance. In John 14, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I love this. This is becoming increasingly precious to me. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, if it were not so, what does he say next? I would have told you. Why? Because Jesus never lets anybody live their life based on a reality that is divorced from the truth. He's saying, I would never provide you with a delusional anticipation of something that's not going to happen. That would be cruel, but I'm a God who cannot lie. And so if this was untrue, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. Do you understand that in the gospel, friend, you don't just receive a new heart. 
you receive a new father, you receive a new home, you receive a new inheritance, you're welcomed into a new family, and when you get the glory, you'll be given a rock with a new name. Christians consider this and are humbled, not energized for vanquishing foes. God did not save you because of your potential, but because of his kindness. And the last thing to note here in this category is that being justified by God's grace means that your standing before God is not based on whether or not you've had a good week, but because you have a good savior. Last thing to note here in verse eight, remembering our mission, verse eight. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul concludes by saying this is a trustworthy statement. This is nothing new is what he's saying. And what he's going to say in chapter two, verse five, chapter two, verse eight, chapter three, verse one, chapter three, verse eight, two, 14, is that the gospel makes a difference in the way that we live and the world sees that. Regeneration, which is the miracle that God does in our hearts, is a one-time event, but it results in ongoing renewal. And Paul is telling Titus, listen, this is going to change the way that you live. And he calls on him for good works, not because we're saved by those good works, but good works are the fruit of gratitude for what Christ has done. Can I ask you a question? Can you sing the songs that we sing and read the truth of Scripture and not be compelled to love and live for Jesus Christ more? If you're untouched by reminders of his grace, can I suggest that potentially you've never been touched and received his mercy? Because hearts that are living respond to the kindness of God. But he says, conduct yourself with good deeds. And I just want to ask you one question. What are the good deeds that he's referring to? Well, obviously it's being kind and all those things. Jonathan Edwards used to talk about there is a star that shines the brightest in the galaxy of the glory of God. There is a sun, figuratively speaking, that shines brighter than anything else in the galaxy that is God's glory. And he says that the sun that shines is the work of reconciliation between a holy God, and a sinful man. If you want to engage in good deeds in the world around them, it means that you must remember your mission. God left you here for such a time as this, not to look at the world and go, man, I can't wait to get out of here. There is only one good thing that you can do right now on earth that you will not be able to do in heaven. In heaven, everything will be better. The food will be better. The fellowship will be better. No mayonnaise. Get that crap out of here. Everything will be better in heaven, but there's only one good thing you can do on planet earth that you will not be able to do in heaven. And you know what that is? Plead with a lost sinner to be reconciled to God and to tell them that God has poured out his love and demonstrated his love at Calvary. And you can know this God. He can save you from your sin. He will welcome you into his family. He will give you a new home, a new inheritance. His Holy Spirit Do you know why you're here? Do you want to know God's will? I know God's will for your life. Because it's revealed, not lost. 
It's that you remember what Christ has done after you reflect on who you were and now you're compelled to remember your mission and you're compelled for your mission. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Jesus Christ compels me. I have to. He says, if you look at me and think I'm insane, just recognize I'm insane and I'm going after it because I think, man, I cannot believe God saved me. Can you reflect on God's kindness and his work in your life and not feel compelled to share that kindness with those around you. Eric said last night um, that we live in a compassion without truth environment. If you love the people around them, around you, you reflect and you remember, you pray for courage and you pray for boldness, and you go, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. I can't believe he saved me. This is too good to be true. I have to tell the world around me. Well, I, w- I wanna do just for a few minutes what we did yesterday and, and bring up Eric, and maybe if you guys have any questions about what this looks like or anything I said that was unclear, I pray each day as I teach that the Holy Spirit would preach a stronger sermon than I ever can. And so I, uh, I'm mindful of that, but I'll turn it over to you, brother. Thanks, Johnny. I got number one. Thank you, guys. I love the point about not needing to be innovative and come up with something new. That's incredibly freeing for a pastor and a theology professor who gets something in the mail every day that says, like Johnny said, unless you do this, you're going to be obsolete, you're going to be irrelevant. And it is so freeing for me and for you, I hope, to know that you don't need to come up with something new and innovative and creative. You're able to be faithful by telling a very old, old story and trusting God to make it life-giving today in the lives of people. Love that point. Here's my question for you. Love the example of being required to take the armor of the Roman soldier a mile, but the Christian being willing to take it another mile and use that as a basis for gospel proclamation. So when do we take that self-sacrificial, submissive approach, and when do we fight for our constitutional rights? So you give the example of the school teacher who had every right to take out his Bible and show it to the student, and he gets busted for it, well, there's a legitimacy to taking that to court, right? And, and not only for that individual, but for future teachers who are put in that position. So, so when do we submit, and when do we fight for our rights? What do you think? Yeah, well, I think like in the democracy that we share, we have a civic duty and we have a civic... Um, truly a a responsibility and a privilege to exercise and wield that as best we can. I'm not a fatalist governmentally, I would say, uh, far from it. So as far as what the scripture tells us is that um, we're not in the, we're not burning down buildings. We're not um, plundering the kingdom of, of the White House when we don't like what we have or what, like the ruling that's been preceded, but we do exercise our civic duty and our civic privilege. And we're to do that probably more now than ever. 
What a time. I was, we had our city, um, I'm a, the dean of student life at the Masters University. Yesterday, we invited um, our congressman, our city congressman, to just do like a few-minute update. And just to give you an idea why, he's up for re-election. And in Santa Clarita, we live in kind of a, almost a conservative sector of Southern California. There's a few different pockets that are like the Alamo. Um, but he, there was an 890,000 votes the last city council, and he won, and he's pro-life, uh, friendly to Christian universities. He won the last election two years ago by 321 votes out of 900,000. And uh, the person he's running up against wants full-term abortion, um, wants to do away with private Christian school, and wants to, is on the Capitol Commission for outlawing homeschooling. Like, you can't because the school has to educate your kids or the system in the state. And so in that regard, that's a real clear indicator for us to go, hey, we have a responsibility here where... um, You know, in California, I've heard people say your vote doesn't matter. Well, actually, it really does, especially at the county level, because even during COVID, we enjoyed some freedoms that other counties around us didn't have. So that's real clear. We exercise that ability. We should fight for what's legally ours, even with the cake bakers that are being sued, you know, a few years ago in Oregon, because they want to do that with for a homosexual wedding, we have the right to refuse service to anybody. And they fought on legal grounds, which is totally fair. I had a friend that was sued for not trying to you know, shoot a, a wedding um, in the same way. So I think we pursue those legal grounds. But I think the main thing there is that when we operate amongst those people, it says to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle. And I think the main consideration there is it deeply saddens me when the people I know, in certain respects, that know the most truth think that they've been given the most leeway to rip to shreds um, the people God has put in authority. uh, Transparently, I'm not a Joe Biden fan, Um, but you're not gonna see me going, what an absolute fool, what an idiot, dementia, wow. And when I look at Titus 3 and I go, to malign no one, that means you don't speak a harmful or hurtful word about someone that God in his providence and sovereignty has put in that authority. And the Christians are to wield influence by going, I, I disagree with this man. I think he's lost. I think he's off. This is unbiblical. This is wicked. But we're not ripping to shreds those people. And I think that's one of the main emphasis in Titus 3. That's great. So another, another related question. Great quote. Uh, Sin is never a side relationship. It's always a master. What I've noticed, though, is that can sound untrue because sometimes it takes a long time for sin to show that it's been your master. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can engage in sin. Sin is pleasurable for a season, right? Yeah. And so because the consequences of sin don't come crashing down on you the next day, it can be hard to believe that. And, and a related question is, I mean, most of my students I teach at Biola were raised in Christian families that have been wonderfully protected from the, the ravages of sin in their lives where their hearts could have taken them. So it's hard for them to believe they were once dead in their transgressions and yeah. sins and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So yeah. how would you encourage us to cultivate an awareness of what we've been saved from, even if we've lived lives? I mean, most of these are very, they're just nice kids, right? They're nice, they're nice people. I've met some of them already. Yeah. And so it can be hard to believe that I'm a wretch. Yeah. I mean, they don't look like wretches. They look like very nice people. So 
How would you cultivate an awareness of what we've been saved from? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And, uh, and I grew up in that environment. You know, I, I've shared my testimony with students at camp before, but I was doing worship and leading worship when I was 13 and used to study with my dad. And I started reading the Bible through in a year, I don't know, when I was nine. And so it was hard for me to go like, man, I, I'm an enemy of God. Um, I think one thing to understand is, is Romans 3.23 says, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. I think no one ever sat me down and helped me understand the verse that comes four verses before. Uh, Every mouth must be stopped before a holy God. And I think if I met God face to face, I would have had a lot to say. And so I think fundamentally, when you think about the most righteous people on earth that have encountered God, whether that be Isaiah, Habakkuk, whatever it says, Isaiah says, woe is me, he's probably the most righteous man on earth. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why? Because the lips and what you say are expressions and monitors of your own heart. And never before had you been so confronted with God's holiness. So fundamentally, small view of God, small view of sin. And so when you view God as a homeboy or something that is just part of your family dynamic, inevitably that's going to be a small view of God. He's not a holy king. He's just uh, he's a verse on your dining, above your dining room table. And when you have a small view of God, you have a small view of your sin. And for me, I recognize that, man, I, I, have, never, I have never really thought um, that I was a wretch. And I begin to see even the hypocrisy in the songs that I sang. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And I went, well, of course he died for me. I'm a four-star recruit. You know, like, I mean, like I'm LaMelo Ball for his kingdom. This makes sense that he would come after me. I know the truth. I've grown up in it. And I realized, and, I, and it was a sermon on Luke 18, that the, the, only, the people that are in heaven right now uh, don't think they deserve to be there. And if you die and you think, I deserve to be there, Luke 18 says you've missed it. And I think probably at 20, 21, I went, I don't understand this. And I started begging God to show me my own sin because for the first time in my life, I went, I don't have any assurance that I really know the Lord because my assurance has always been grounded on faith and grace, but partnered with this idea that I kind of needed it. Not Those are the people Jesus goes after more than anybody else. Anybody, the yeah. Self-righteous, yeah. even religious leaders yeah. who know all the right answers. Yeah. You could add Job to your examples. Yeah. No one was as righteous as Job, but at the end of the revelation he receives from God, he says, I despise myself. I'm undone, yeah. I'm undone, yeah. Questions, thoughts, what do you want to talk about? Tell me your name in the back. Hunter. Thank you. you. Yeah, that, Thank that's, you, that's a challenging way to think about heaven. Yeah, good. Thanks. Tell me your name. Um, I'm Abby. Hi, Abby. Yes.
great question. I was just talking to Ezra. Where are you, Ezra? Talking to Ezra last night about the, these kinds of questions. So he's, he's a very, very politically informed, interested young man. And what's his role? I think the first thing is to realize that this is a good area for discussion and debate among Christians. So when I was a kid, I would sing two songs, sometimes in the same church service. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but one was, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up for me somewhere beyond blue. This world's not my home. But then the next song would be, this is my father's world, right? So, so does he own it? Does he reign over it and rule over it? Or is it just a sinking Titanic I need to endure until Jesus comes back, right? And, and the truth, I think, is found sort of in between those two songs where this world and, say, political solutions are not addressing the ultimate realities, but like Martin Luther King said, laws can't make you love me, but they can keep you from lynching me. And so there's a very real practical political importance for Christians to be involved as salt and light and good citizens, especially in an environment where we get that right. There are other places you don't get that right. And so I think to be engaged meaningfully is really important. But I think we need to allow for differences of view on just how much, especially when we consider different callings for different Christians. I think some Christians are called by God to dive into the political realm, for instance, to a much greater degree than others. I also think it's important to distinguish between the, the calling of individual Christians and the calling of the local church and its primary role in, pre in preaching the gospel, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry in public schools, in the political sphere, in, in business, wherever, in homemaking, whatever it is, that we allow for some really good debate among Christians which is why your question is so important. I don't, I don't think there's just one simple answer on that, but I do think we need to weigh heavily our role to be salt and light and take advantage of the opportunities we have in a society that gives us opportunities, and at the same time not see the ultimate solutions in the midterm elections, but the gospel as the ultimate solution to everything. I think that, that tension's the key. Does that help, Abby? Okay, all right. I think, yeah, just one thing to add to is uh, God's sovereignty on, over any of those things is never a catalyst for passivity and fatalism. And so the Old Testament, uh, in a number of different scenarios, and um, you just look at, the Pro at Proverbs uh, 21, the, we prepare the horse for battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. God's sovereignty and a trust in him is never supposed to be so that Christians go, God's got it. We do what God has put in front of us, and there's an element where we work, we labor, we exercise our civil duty, and then we trust. And I think one thing to add is someone can be cons uh, politic politically conservative but still be estranged from God. And so I think sometimes what gets lost in this, and this is where I think what Eric said about finding a middle ground is important, what gets estranged from this is you can dial with someone on sexuality, abortion, taxes, the school system, and they still might know God. So with Christians, I think what he said is important. We remember fundamentally that the most important thing is the gospel, um, but that doesn't excuse us from not engaging in the conversation. Maybe one more before we get rolling. Yeah, go ahead. So God promotes free will, right? Uh, does God promote free will? Uh, explain what you mean by that. I, I, I'm interested in what you have to say. Yeah, so that, I think that the answer, does God promote free will? Is he for free will? 
has he created a world where that exists? I think a lot of the answer to that question depends on how you define free will. There's this idea of free will where there are absolutely no determinatively influencing factors in internally or externally in my life. And I don't think that sort of hypothetical thing actually exists. Yeah, I don't even think it exists for God. I don't think God has free will in that sense because everything God does is determined by his character. And it doesn't mean he's stuck with a, free will, with a character he'd prefer to veer from. But I think God is determined by his character, but that's self-determined. That's internal in who he is. I think human beings are free to do exactly what they want. The problem is sinful fallen human beings, all they want to do is sin. So you're completely free to do what your heart wants to do. And the Bible describes that as being in a sinful state where you're completely free to do what you want to do, which is sin. I don't want to do anything that's God-glorifying in my sinful condition. And so I, I need my wanter fixed. It's broken, and God's the one who does that. He makes me want him and to glorify him rather than glorify myself. I think one, one thing to... Um, as far as the free will, God's sovereignty, for me, it's, it's scripturally, Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over everything. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does what he wants. I love that. Then you also have to look at Matthew. Come to me. Why don't you come to me? Jesus looks over Jerusalem and says, I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers the little chicks, but you refuse. So one of the things that we see throughout the scripture is that God, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then what does it say two chapters later? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so to choose between sovereignty and free will is to cancel out a biblical reality. God is both sovereign, it says in John, that no one comes to me unless the Father chooses him and draws him. But then what is Jesus doing? Come to me, come to me, come to me. And so this is why Spurgeon says, yeah, even God is sovereign over the you know, over salvation, but does that mean that I wash my hands of it? He says, no, I preach the gospel to every single person. Why? Because who God has sovereignly ordained don't have yellow stripes running down their back. And so we respond. And so I think there, to choose between free will, we're not automatons, meaning that it's not deterministic. We have choice, and that's why there's so many different commands in Scripture. Choose this day, Joshua 1, whom you will serve. But then it's going to tell us over and over again that God is sovereign. So we can talk more about that. I think that's a great thing to recognize, but Spurgeon says they're not like this. They're two steel cables that run parallel alongside each other throughout Scripture. And he says, I'm not trying to reconcile enemies. I don't have to reconcile friends because these are two realities in Scripture, and at least that's where I would stand. And I would say they're not just parallel, but they're intertwined yeah. in a way where, where God is sovereign and we're responsible for what we do. Great, Lots of verses you can talk about. Uh, Peter rebuking the religious leaders for crucifying Jesus says, you with the help of sinful men handed him over to be crucified. And all this happened according to the predetermined plan of God. So it's a beautiful responsibility of people who did that, but recognizing God's sovereign over even the most evil things that ever happened, like the cross. Yeah. Beautiful. God, we love you, and we're thankful even for the questions that represent the hunger to know your truth and a desire to live for you. Lord, we are just reminded that your word, Peter tells us, gives us everything we need pertaining to a life of godliness, which means that we never really have to wander around in ambiguity as to how we should live. We just need to read and study and obey. And so, Lord, we're, we're thankful for that. Lord, would you help us to remember what you've done in our lives, to remember the gospel and to remember 
our mission in a dark and decaying world. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. Amen.